grace to receive the word by faith and with fear. We look to you, O oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said when I began, uh, we're, we're really in the thesis of this book. And in Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what God intended, declared that the gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ, is the mighty instrument by which God saves and sustains every believer. In other words, when this message is proclaimed, God himself exercises his power to save and to sustain his people from every nation, speaking every language, living in every place, and during every time. I mentioned this in the prayer meeting this morning, but on Friday, uh, a brother from Meru, Kenya, a town probably none of you have heard of, with a very small church, sent us his prayer letter and said, brother, remember us in prayer, and, and asked for our prayer letter and said, we'll be praying for you. And isn't it amazing that God saves and sustains us here in Augusta, Georgia, and them there in Meru, Kenya, through the same gospel. It's not one plan for Americans, one plan for Kenyans, one plan for the suburban, one plan for the rural. It's one gospel by which God works to save and sustain his people. You might remember two months ago, I, I used electricity to illustrate God's saving power in the gospel. Like electricity, God's power exerted in and through gospel ministry is immense necessary for all that we do and are as the church. And if we're honest, it's also easily overlooked or taken for granted and assumed. Now in verse 17, the Apostle Paul explains how God saves through the gospel and its proclamation. Verse 16, what is the gospel? The power of God by which he saves and sustains every believer. Verse 17, how? How, how does God do it? How does he work through the gospel to keep his people, to bring his people into salvation. I could begin this sermon, just like I did with verse 16 then, by extending the electricity illustration from two months ago. Paul labors in verse 17 to increase our confidence in the gospel. And how else can he increase our confidence in the gospel than helping us understand how the gospel works, how the gospel saves uh, two months ago when I was grabbing onto the electricity illustration, I was trying to talk with Joe Bringer and with Bob Carroll about electricity, and it was, I just couldn't understand it. It was, they were trying to explain it to me. I didn't become less amazed, I became more amazed. And so we could say here, Paul explains the gospel, and by his explanation we could expect to become more confident in the gospel. We could even extend the illustration by explaining that an electrician must understand how electricity works in order to build, maintain, and repair electrical systems. And by this, we could illustrate that every Christian must understand how God works through gospel preaching because we all share in gospel ministry to build, maintain, reform, and grow our local church. But this morning, I want to begin by laying aside my normal practice of beginning with an illustration. Why? Because Romans 1.17 needs no illustration. Its pressing relevance ought to be evident to us all immediately. Look at the text. Though words fill this verse that seem archaic 
and strange without the inward illumination of the Spirit. Words like righteousness, words like revealed, words like faith, concepts like salvation. There are few, if any, sentences in all creation that are more immediately relevant to every human in every place during every time. For this verse explains how God is both righteous and the one who saves his unrighteous people from his righteous judgment against our unrighteousness. If this verse still seems distant from us, allow me to speak even more directly. One day you will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that's the topic because look at the final clause of verse 17. Paul's quoting from the book of Habakkuk. A context when terrible judgment, God's terrible judgment was coming upon his people. And God tells Habakkuk, and Paul picks up on that here, that the one who will live, the one who will live is not the one who has, is not by our, what family we're born into or by our obedience to the law. The one who lives in the midst of judgment is the one who is righteous by faith. Yes, you will appear before the judgment seat of God, being revealed and exposed by his piercing eyes that search out even the depths of our being. He will weigh you in the scales of his perfect and impartial justice. He will search out every hidden deed and expose every wicked thought and desire, Romans 2.16. And what is it that he requires? What is it that he's looking for? Perfect obedience and unblemished righteousness. We know this is what Paul's talking about as well because Christ's judgment of the world is a key component of the gospel the apostle preaches in Acts 17 and which he summarizes in Romans 1.4. And as Taylor so clearly said earlier, we can live our lives thinking, I deserve life. What right does God have to take that away from me? But the biblical witness is that when the Lord Jesus judges us, each one of us deserves one clear verdict. Death. Not merely temporal death, but eternal death. The unending experience of God's terrible and just wrath because of our sin against this eternal and holy God who deserves our wholehearted love and who made us and sustains us constantly to bear his image rightly in righteousness. This verdict is what justice requires. And this coming judgment is the most significant event in world history and the most pressing and relevant date in your calendar. The day, Paul tells us in Romans 2, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You don't need an illustration for me to make that relevant to you. But in the gospel, we hear the good news that the righteous God has decreed and secured life for his unrighteous people and not death, through this same man, Jesus Christ. Again, to speak directly to you, Christian, though you have sinned greatly against him and deserve only death, God has determined to give you life 
on that day of judgment rather than death. He has determined to bless you rather than curse you, to save you rather than to judge you, to justify you rather than to condemn you as you deserve. Indeed, he already causes us, those of us who have been joined to Jesus by faith, to share in that salvation now, in the present, though we still sin and dishonor him in many ways. Naturally, to our hearts and minds, we should be asking the question, how is this possible? How can the righteous God save his unrighteous people and remain righteous himself? Has God abandoned justice? In other words, has God ceased to act righteously? Christian, how exactly have you come to share in so great a salvation? How is it that the God of righteousness is now for us always rather than against us? And maybe I could even make the question less polar than that. He's for us or against us, for us always rather than against us always. How is it that we don't, in the midst of our ongoing sin, move from God for us, God against us, back and forth? How is it that Paul can say in Romans 8, there's no more condemnation? How is it that Paul can say in Romans 8, God is for us? Who can be against us? This is relevant to you even if you're here as a non-believer, as a non-Christian. How can you come to share in so great a salvation from the wrath of God that is coming upon you? Romans 1.17 explains how God secures us for salvation through the gospel. I hope then we see the immediate, the pressing relevance of this verse as we ought. We know righteousness, by the way. Just one of the reasons I try to point things in the passage is to make sure you're not, you're not simply trusting in what I say, but you can see it in the passage for yourself. Why is righteousness the topic of this sermon today? Because if you look at verse 17, it's, it's harder to see in, in the English. It's very clear in the original. The, the syntax is broken. Righteousness is put up front. You can see it, though, in the ESV. Paul's telling us, hey, everyone, this is my topic, righteousness. Righteousness of God. That's why it's our topic this morning. And if I were to summarize Paul's message in this passage, here's how I would summarize it. When the gospel is proclaimed, God reveals his saving righteousness in Christ and secures us for salvation by faith in him. Say that one more time. That's a summary of what Paul is speaking to us, what the Spirit is speaking to us through the words of Paul this morning. When the gospel is proclaimed, God reveals his saving righteousness in Christ and secures us for salvation by faith in him. We'll take this verse in two parts. First part of verse 17, our topic is the righteousness of God or what the gospel reveals. And then the second half of the verse, our topic is salvation by faith or what the gospel produces and secures. Let's begin then by turning our attention directly to Romans 1.17a. Read it again with me. For the righteousness of God is being revealed in it, or in the gospel. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that when the gospel is proclaimed, God is revealing. Paul doesn't say God revealed it in the gospel. He's saying 
when the gospel is being proclaimed, God is revealing his righteousness in Christ. Just to start simply, what word connects verse 17 to verse 16? What's our conjunction from verse 17 to verse 16? Even a child can answer this question. Four, thank you, four. In other words, the apostle tells us here, as this next verse begins, that what he's about to say explains what he just said in verse 16. I've said this already this morning. Verse 16 declared that God works mightily through the gospel. Verse 17 explains how God works mightily through the gospel. Immediately then, let us adopt the apostle's mindset as our own. Application in Bible reading, when we're reading the scriptures, if you've started a, a new plan this year, or, or however you're going to go about reading the scriptures, application is not merely about what I must do. So often the biblical application, this is Romans 12, isn't it? Is that as we read the scriptures, the spirit conforms our mindset to the mindset of God revealed through the apostles and the prophets. Immediately then, let us adopt the apostles' mindset as our own. For Paul, gospel ministry is never merely the work of man. What I'm doing right now, what you're doing right now, is not merely the work of man. I want to be clear here. I'll tell you what I'm not saying. Gospel ministry requires the fearless, faithful, enduring spirit-empowered labors of the whole church. So I'm not saying that gospel ministry isn't the work of man. It's how Paul starts this section. I'm eager, the apostle wrote in verse 15, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So Paul clearly conceives of gospel ministry as the work of man. Key word, though, is merely. Gospel ministry is the work of man. What happens on a Sunday morning when you gather to hear the gospel, when we sing the gospel in song, when you teach Sunday school class to the little children? What happens on Sunday morning is the work of man, but it is not merely the work of man. Because when the gospel is preached or taught or explained, God himself is working. God is working when a pastor preaches the gospel. God is working when parents teach the gospel to their children. God is working when one church member reminds another church member of the gospel or when we sing the gospel together in song. God is working, though it might feel absurd, when you explain the gospel to your coworker, your neighbor, your classmate, your family member. God is working in gospel ministry, but what is God doing? How is he working? That's what that little word for tells us the apostle will explain in verse 17. What is God doing when the gospel is preached or taught or explained? He is, look at verse 17, revealing something. That is, he's making something known. We, we can simply note here that the apostle, carried along by the Holy Spirit, such that every word he has written has been inspired by the Spirit to be written and preserved for us, wrote, revealed, and not simply taught. In other words, God is not merely communicating information 
through gospel ministry to increase our knowledge. When we think that, when we think that gospel ministry preaching, what happens on a Sunday school, what happens in family worship is just teaching, that's one of the reasons we fall into the trap to say, well, I know about the gospel. I don't need it anymore. But, but Paul doesn't say God is teaching something through gospel ministry. He says God is revealing something through gospel ministry. What God does when the gospel is preached or taught or explained is unique. You can't get it anywhere else. When the gospel is ministered, God is making something known before our eyes and to our hearts, revealing something that's not naturally evident in this world, disclosing something that no one can naturally figure out, unveiling something that was once hidden from and searched for diligently by the prophets themselves, giving something that cannot be gotten anywhere else. Should we not then treasure the preaching of the gospel more than we so often do? Julia and I lived in Minnesota when the first freestanding Chick-fil-A stores were opening. And when each store opened, people would camp out overnight in Minnesota to get in the store on the first day. Even we, we had heard of Chick-fil-A, and I think we had hit it on the way down at, at service areas sometimes. Although we often traveled on Sundays, we'd always forget. We'd pull into the service area, Chick-fil-A's closed. But even we, after the stores already opened, would drive much farther than we should have to get a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Because we couldn't get a chicken sandwich or a cookies and cream milkshake like that anywhere else. It's unique. You might laugh at us northerners for the example, but it's true of all of us, isn't it? We will do almost anything to get something unique that we can't get anywhere else. That's why so many of us have six different streaming services, because there's that one show that we have to have and so I've got to sign up for that streaming service to get it. Dear friends, there is no greater nor more unique treasure than what God gives us whenever the gospel is faithfully preached or taught or explained. Why then do we so often neglect, resent, or even resist gospel preaching? Why do we labor to finish the Lord's Day as quickly as possible? Why are we so easily bored with the gospel and tempted to choose almost anything over it? May God be merciful to us and help us as he has so graciously promised to do. When the gospel is preached, the apostle tells us in verse 17, God is working in a mighty way to make a unique and inestimable treasure known. What is he making known? Continue the illustration, Chick-fil-A serves chicken sandwiches, right? That's why you go to Chick-fil-A. What is God working to disclose whenever the gospel is preached on a Sunday or explained in family worship or taught in a Sunday school or over coffee with an unbeliever? Look at verse 17. The righteousness of God. For the righteousness of God is being revealed in gospel ministry. 
Now, we need to understand what Paul means by this phrase, the righteousness of God. There is perhaps no more important or relevant phrase that you will encounter in your entire existence. What does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? I'll explain it a little bit more later. But Paul has in mind two realities. He means the righteousness of God within himself. In other words, he means God's character. He's referring to something about God's character. But he's also talking at the same time about something that God requires from those in his presence. And, and you can understand the connection, right? If you think about righteousness or justice of a judge. A, if we say a judge is just, we're talking about his character, something that's true about him, right? But if a judge is just, he can't allow injustice in his presence. Because if this just judge was to allow injustice before him, he would cease to be that which he is. And so the righteousness of God refers to God's character, but also, therefore, what God requires from those in his presence. And to say one more reality here before we go further, what we mean by righteous, when we're talking about the judgment of God, is not what a judge in our judicial system might do. What is the verdict that comes across from the jury? Guilty or not guilty, innocent. In the scriptures, the opposite of guilty is not innocent. Innocent is a neutral reality, right? Innocent says you haven't done something bad, but it doesn't say whether or not you've done something right. But in the biblical courtroom, the option is not necessarily guilty or innocent. It's condemned or righteous. Either you have done wrong and deserve death, or you have fulfilled righteousness and deserve life. Before we continue to search out the Spirit's meaning and what the Apostle has written here, though, let me explain why this unique revelation in the gospel of the righteousness of God is so important to us. No doubt, time goes on. Some of us are thinking, and all of us have felt at one time or another, what's the big deal? I get it, the righteousness of God. In fact, a Chick-fil-A sandwich seems much more relevant right now than the righteousness of God. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. Maybe some of you are even saying, I'm not even a Christian. What do I need to know about the righteousness of God for? Let me persuade you that hearing about the righteousness of God is perhaps the most important thing you will do this week with two arguments. First, as J.I. Packer reminds us, Knowing God, I'm going, to, I'm going to read an extended quotation from him, but it's worth it. As J.I. Packer reminds us, knowing God is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life 
and lose your soul. So first of all, knowing God is crucial, joyous, beneficial. Humanity exists to know God. Christian, you were redeemed to know God. What is the chief end of man? To know God and to enjoy him forever. And Paul tells us that God uniquely reveals something about his own righteousness in the gospel. Something we cannot come to know about him through any other means. So we should yearn to know this God as he is working uniquely to make himself known to us and to our hearts whenever the gospel is proclaimed. Second, and this point is where I began this sermon, the righteousness of God necessarily relates to the most important, relevant date in your future existence, the last day. Wondering if this is relevant to you, or even feeling like it's irrelevant to you, is like a bride saying, my, my engaged, my fiancé, he's just kind of irrelevant. I need you to explain why I should care about that. Knowing why the righteousness of God is necessarily immediately relevant to us, knowing why theology like this matters, comes as naturally as someone who's about to face judgment learning the facts of their case because they recognize the immensity of the date, the trial date set before them. The Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. He requires righteousness. And so the question, of course, is this. Will he condemn you unto eternal death on that day, or will he declare you just and righteous unto eternal life? It's not just a question for the present, though. Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is already being revealed all around us. In this day, after the resurrection of Christ, Paul looks at the world and says, judgment's already breaking out like water breaking through a dam. The righteousness of God is Paul's topic. The righteousness of God, his character as God, but also what he requires. And there's a problem here when we come to the Old Testament, isn't there? A problem for us. But even more so, a problem, and I'm speaking here as a man, a problem for God. God clearly reveals that he is just and righteous. What does that mean? It means that God always acts with accord, in accordance with who he is. That's God's righteousness. He always acts in accordance with who he is. He's consistent. That's why Moses calls him in Deuteronomy 32, the rock. What God is, so God does. God is good, so God does good. God is truth, so God never lies. God is just, so God acts justly. God is merciful, so God abounds in mercy. The righteousness of God is that character quality, that attribute by which God always acts as and like God. And again, feel the practicality of this. What's the problem with an abusive father, an abusive parent? It's not that he's angry all the time or she's angry all the time. It's that you never know what's going to happen. Is she going to shower me with gifts today? 
or pour forth anger for no reason upon them. Brothers and sisters, the fact that God is righteous means he's not like that. He's consistent. He is who he says he is. And he acts in accordance with who he is. He's a rock. We can stand upon him. His righteousness means that we can always depend upon him to act consistent with who he is. Here's the question. If that's true of God, if God is just and righteous, how can he save any man? For God is righteous, we are unrighteous and deserve death, and God particularly hates a partial and unjust judge. Proverbs 17, 15. He who declares the wicked just and he who condemns the righteous are both alike, and here's that Old Testament word that expresses what God detests, an abomination to the Lord. So how can God save any of us from his coming wrath? How can he treat any of us with favor, grace, partiality today? Some in Paul's day, it's one of the reasons he's writing the letter, some in Paul's day might answer, the law. That, that's why God can be for us and against those people over there. Because we've been born as Jews. Or, or because we have the law. Or with a similar heart. You might answer, God's righteous, how can he save me? Well, I've been good enough. I'm not perfect. No one is. I'm not flawless. But I belong to a church. I've been a generally good person. <laughs> Read history. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. And my good deeds certainly, are there bad deeds? Yeah, but certainly in the scales of his judgment, I've at least got one more good deed than the bad one. The Lord Jesus will judge me worthy of life. And the impulse to look to the law is not completely misplaced, is it? The law charted a path to salvation, didn't it? We, we see the, the language of salvation at the end of Romans 1.17. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. That language of shall live is the, the, the topic of salvation. Well, what does the law say? Leviticus 18.5. The man who does these things shall what? Live. Deuteronomy 6.25. God requires righteousness. How do we get righteousness? Deuteronomy 6.25. And righteousness will be ours if we are careful to obey all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. In other words, because God is righteous, he requires perfect obedience and unblemished righteousness from us as we live life. And the law reveals specifically what God requires. The man who loved God with his whole heart and complete existence by obeying every law in the Old Testament from his heart, according to God's intent, would be declared righteous by God and rewarded with eternal life. Paul himself states this in Romans 2.6. God will render to each one according to his works. The righteousness that comes from the law says, the man who does these things shall live. But as the whole Bible so clearly demonstrates, and Paul explains in Romans 3, we read it earlier, the law brought condemnation and death. 
even the things that happened before Sinai that weren't punished with death, like when the people grumbled, what happened after the law came at Sinai, those same things happened. But because the law revealed what God required, the law condemned the people and brought death. Moses himself died outside the promised land. And God gave the law to accomplish that very purpose. Because God's righteous law reveals how unrighteous, how wicked, how unloving and selfish, how deserving of death and incapable of earning salvation we actually are. The law is meant to be like a GPS. I don't mean the, the function of a GPS that shows you uh, I'm off the path, get back to it, but I think about my own driving. So oftentimes I'm talking with my wife, I'm distracted, the purple line is here. I look down at the GPS and realize before it recalculates, oh, I'm in the gray and the purple line is here. I'm off the path. That's how the law functions. Like a GPS, it charts the path God requires so that we can see how we have left God's path to follow our own. Or you can consider an EKG. An EKG can't generate or sustain life. Instead, it merely exposes how dead to God and to his righteousness we actually are. So here's the problem. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 125, Do good, O Lord. Do good to those who are good. Do good to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. This principle is what God's righteousness requires. He's a just judge. He's a righteous judge. And we might not want to apply that justice to ourselves, but certainly whenever we are wronged by another, whenever some great injustice is done against us, don't we cry out for justice? Don't we long for a righteous judge to vindicate justice. And what did the law reveal? Romans 3, 9 to 10. That all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament here. None is righteous. No, not one. So here then is the pressing question. Let me say one more thing from Paul's own words after he quotes from the Old Testament. So what do you deserve? What wages have we earned by our lives? Death. Isn't that what Paul says? For the wages of sin is death. So here then is the pressing question. God is righteous and just. He always acts consistent with who he is. We began this way in our call to worship. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. And we are unrighteous. We have sinned. We have felt, thought, and acted wickedly. Rejecting his word in every sin. Resisting his worth in every idolatrous desire. And refusing his worship even by our silence. How then can we be saved? How can God be God and deliver us from his coming wrath, which we deserve? How can the Lord Jesus be the righteous judge and give us life both now, today, and on the last day? 
Make it concrete. How can God preserve David's dynasty and not Saul's? You can't say, well, David didn't sin. Yes, he did. How can God bless Jacob and not Esau? We preached through the story a month ago. Jacob was no righteous man. Certainly no more righteous than Esau. How can God justify Moses? Not Pharaoh. Certainly can't be by Moses' keeping of the law. He dies outside the land because of his sin. Just like Pharaoh. How can God save any sinner at all and still be righteous himself? Again, to press home the relevance of this question to our hearts, we deserve condemnation and death. And shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What hope can any of us have that God will save us from his wrath and save us for life on the last day? What confidence can any of us have that God is for us today immovably and will be for us tomorrow? There is no more important or pressing question for us to answer. Church, even if you were to search all the world, you would never stumble upon the answer. Even if you were to read every great philosopher and every brilliant mathematician and every skilled poet and storyteller from all the cultures and languages of this vast earth, you would never discover the answer. Paul says this in Romans 1. The knowledge of God in creation is sufficient to make us know God is the creator who deserves thanksgiving. And therefore, the knowledge of God in creation is sufficient to condemn us, not to save us. But whenever the gospel is proclaimed, this is what Paul's saying in Romans 1 verse 17. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, God is working to make his answer known. God is working to save and to sustain his people by uniquely revealing in the gospel his saving righteousness to us. In other words, there is a way for us to be saved apart from the kind of righteousness the law requires or provides. There is a way for God to be God and to save his sinful, law-breaking people. There is a way that we can be confident today of our salvation and secured for it tomorrow. We don't have to flip-flop between, oh, I, I've been really good in the last 24 hours, God's for me. Oh, I sinned, despair, God must be against me. No, we can be confident. Romans 8, that God is for us, that there's no more condemnation. Brothers and sisters, there is a saving righteousness by which God is both just and the one who declares his ungodly people just. And God is working to make that righteousness known to us whenever we hear the gospel faithfully proclaimed. Praise God. And of course, this unique revelation of his saving righteousness in the gospel isn't just an abstract concept. It focuses 
on a person, doesn't it? Isn't that how Paul summarized the gospel in Romans 1, 1 to 4? The gospel, which God promised beforehand in the Holy Scripture through his prophets about his. Look at it. You have your Bibles open to Romans 4. About his what? Son. About his son. The unique revelation of God's saving righteousness in the gospel focuses upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news, not about what God will necessarily do. It, it contains that. But fundamentally, the gospel is good news about what God has already done in his son to fulfill what he promised about his son. And what has God done? I'm going to answer that question three different ways. And then I'm going to say those same three things in a more succinct way. So follow me. What has God done? He has provided us with a saving righteousness to justify us before him by Christ's righteous life of wholehearted love for God and of perfect obedience to his law. That's the first thing he's done. He's provided us with a saving righteousness. So some, some status that fulfills in his presence what he requires. Number two, he has provided us with full atonement to satisfy his just wrath against us and to redeem us from our sins by Christ's life of suffering and sacrificial substitutionary death upon the cross. And number three, Christ didn't stay dead. He has provided us with a new Adam to represent us before him in perfect righteousness and to secure us for salvation by Christ's righteousness, resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. And let me try to say those three things again simply. Number one, God's provided righteousness. What does that mean? By his life, Christ earned for us what we could not earn for ourselves, righteousness, right standing with God. Number two, by his death, Christ provided for us what we could never provide for ourselves, atonement. Number three, by his resurrection, Christ now lives to save us and to secure us for a salvation we could never obtain or keep by ourselves. In Christ, God has provided us with a saving righteousness, the fulfillment of what he requires, both the positive fulfillment, the righteousness he, he requires us to do and be, but also a, a negative fulfillment. He's removed from us the wickedness and the guilt we naturally are and deserve. In Christ, God has provided us with a saving righteousness. But not only this. Remember how I defined righteousness in the beginning? Righteousness is first and foremost, the righteousness of God is first and foremost something about God, who he is, and therefore it's a requirement. Brothers and sisters, don't you see how in the gospel God has vindicated his own righteousness, demonstrating that he alone is God, that he is who he says he is, that he is our rock, and that we can and ought to trust him alone for our salvation. That's what happens in our hearts when the gospel's preached. God reveals, yes, I'm righteous. 
Yes, here's the answer to the Old Testament's problem. Yes, you can trust me to be and act in accordance with who I am. And what happens in our hearts? Just like a, a son learning to trust his father, God calls forth faith and sustains it. Whenever the gospel is preached or taught or explained, God is revealing his saving righteousness in Christ. The righteousness of God, the apostle tells us in the first half of Romans 1.17, is what God reveals in the gospel. And in that revelation of his righteousness to us, when the gospel's proclaimed, God secures us for salvation, not by what we do, but by faith in him. Look to the second half of the verse. For the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel from faith for faith. Just as it has been written, the righteous one or the one who is righteous by faith shall live. If God has provided his righteousness to his people in Christ, if God makes saving righteousness known to us whenever Christ is proclaimed in the gospel, how do we come to share in that salvation? How can we obtain that saving righteousness such that already today and on the last day we can be confident that God is for us and not against us? Paul tells us in verse 17, by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by working. I'm going to give three not but statements to help us define saving faith. How do we receive Christ's righteousness? How are we brought into salvation by faith? What is faith? Well, it's not working but it's resting in who Jesus is, in what he has done, and, is, and in what he is doing for our salvation. It's not by working, but by resting. It's not by giving, but by receiving him and his work as a free and merciful gift from God for our salvation. And it's not by demonstrating our worth by what we wear or how we define ourselves or what we do, but by trusting in Christ and his work as God reveals him to us in the gospel. By faith in Jesus Christ, God brings us into salvation. By faith in Jesus Christ, God unites us to Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, God credits his righteousness to us and declares us just, worthy of his divine favor and saving help on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done. We are accepted by God. Nay, more than that, we are, we are recipients of the love of God and the grace of God and the for usness of God because of what Christ has done and because of who he has been and who he still is. So what then shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Amen. And do you see then how God works in gospel ministry not only to generate our faith in Christ but also to sustain it? Our faith is not a natural or inherent power or ability that we possess. It is a gift from God that he generates and sustains by his spirit in our hearts through the revelation of Christ to us. We truly are weak and needy in this regard, are we not? We forget Christ. We grow restless with his righteousness. We hesitate regarding the sufficiency of God's gift in him. 
We doubt him and the gospel that reveals his person and work to us. And so even as Paul commands the gospel minister in 2 Timothy 2.14, we must be reminded of him constantly. We never outgrow him. We never, there's no, oh, the gospel's for 1.0 Christians and and there's something else for 2.0 Christians or 3.0 or whatever. We never move beyond the gospel because our faith must be strengthened and renewed. Our restlessness must be quieted again and again. Our self-confident labors must be ceased. Our doubts must be answered and removed. This is exactly what the church is for. And isn't this a better purpose? Isn't the biblical purpose better than the therapeutic, psychologistic, programmatic purposes of the church that people in our day come up with them? You must give me this. You must do that. You must satisfy this. You must satisfy that. You must have this program or this model or these metrics. But what is God doing in the church? Whenever the pastor preaches Christ in the gospel from all of scripture on the Lord's day, whenever the parent teaches Christ in the gospel during Sunday school or family worship, whenever we sing Christ in the gospel together in our hymns and songs, whenever we labor to support our gospel partners in gospel ministry, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, God is revealing his saving righteousness in Christ. And he is, by generating and sustaining faith through that revelation of righteousness, Securing us for salvation by faith in him. Do we see then why the apostle says in Romans 1.15 that his only desire is to preach the gospel to this church in Rome? The gospel is God's instrument by which he powerfully saves and sustains every believer. For when the gospel is proclaimed, God is revealing his saving righteousness in Christ and is so securing his people for salvation by faith in him. Let us pray then. Let us pray together as a church in this next year, asking God to make Paul's desire in verse 15, gospel ministry, the one means we trust and treasure in our own hearts, our own lives, our own families, our own church for our salvation for our righteousness before God, and for the glory of Christ's name among all nations.